This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on October 30th, 2019. The topic is social media and youth. On the panel we have Sean, our lived experience representative, Dr. Jasmine Fardouli, postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Emotional Health, Dr. Yasmin London, Executive Director of YSAFE, and Dr. Danielle Einstein, clinical psychologist and author of The Dip. Chairing the session this evening, we have Dr. Carol Newell. Hi, everyone. Welcome to tonight's podcast, which is social media, youth and mental health. We've compiled some excellent panelists and experts in social media, mental health and youth. Um, just to get started, I'll get each of the panelists to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about your background, um, your experience and expertise in social media use, uh, use and youth. So we might start with Jasmine at the end then, just come across to the line. Yep. So um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Centre for Emotional Health at Macquarie University, and I've been um, conducting research on social media and mental health with a particular focus on body image and eating pathology uh, for the last eight years. Um, so I did my PhD looking at um, links between making appearance comparisons on social media and how that's linked with body image concerns. And since then, I've continued to look at links between social media and mental health with um, adolescents um, in longitudinal studies, and also looking at things that we might be able to do to improve things on social media. So looking at what content might be helpful or at least reduce any harm that social media may have on body image. Um, so that's, yeah. Thanks, Jasmine. And Sean. I'm Sean Torben. I am 19. I'm studying Macquarie University. I'm studying a double degree of psychology and neuroscience is a short way to say it. Um, I work two jobs at part-time. One of them is with Headspace, so I volunteer there as well. So I'm part of the youth reference group and I also manage the social media there. And I also do a lot of other volunteering in my community too. Danielle. Um, so I'm Danielle Einstein. I am a mum of two teenage boys. So that's part of my experience with social media. Um, secondly, I have been researching and working with schools for quite a long time. I started actually, I started working on whether people liked uncertainty and how could you manage uncertainty like a long time ago, like early 2000s. But um, in 2013, we started to work on that um, with schools. And when we talk a bit later, I'll sort of mention how important that is for the reason that we reach for our phones. Um, and in the sort of hook that pulls us into social media. So while I was working with schools, phones sort of came up as being a big issue and I realised that the topic that I was working on was pretty important um, and whether we can change the way that we relate to our phones and that we use our phones to sort of have really healthy practices is what I've been interested in. So I've written a book for families. I've campaigned on schools putting better limits in and, in fact, find bans um, because of the link between um, overusing your phone and, and possibly an anxiety levels. Um, and I work in private practice. I've got a really small private practice in Bonner Junction. Welcome, Danielle. Yes, man. 
Um, hello, everybody. I'm, I think, other than Sean, the only non-doctor on this panel. Uh, I have a background in law enforcement, so I have spent about 13 years as a New South Wales police officer. About eight of those years was spent as a youth liaison officer or a school liaison officer, a specialist youth officer, pretty much anything with the word officer and youth in it. I've pretty much done it in the police. Uh, I was based primarily out of Rose Bay Police Station, and obviously part of our role there was to deal with people who had uh, you know, issues, um, suicidal ideation, things like that, up at the gap in Watsons Bay. Uh, I had uh, a couple of things happen to me when, uh, when I was working there. One was a really intense uh, negotiation with a young girl over the incorrect side of the fence over an Instagram photograph, which really taught me some lessons about the power of social media and the importance of it in young children's or young kids' lives. And I also had a funny experience happen to me where I was filmed <coughs> dancing with somebody, a guy at an um, event in Martin Place, I get the nods because people start to recognise this story, uh, for a, a, a fundraiser which basically went viral um, and hit about 6.6 .6 million views. So uh, I have the experience, I suppose, of being the victim of and uh, trying to be a person that helps people manage their way through, um, I suppose, the the traversing of social media and, and what can happen. Uh, and now I've left the police. I'm now the executive director of an organisation called YSAFE. So we teach cyber safety and social media education, basically how to have a positive relationship with your devices to kids all over Australia. Uh, so we do staff development and parent development sessions. So we speak to about 250,000 kids a year, about 100,000 parents and lots and lots of staff in different areas like this. So. Yeah, that's me. Okay. Well, while we're on you, actually, what prompted that that switch? I mean, you've had some experience with social media, the damaging effect of social mm -hmm. media, that one-on-one -on -one experience with the young lady at The Gap. Mm -hmm. But what prompted that switch into YSAFE? I think I was being asked to do a lot of uh, education at schools as part of my role as a YLO. And it was quite restrictive what I could say, what I couldn't say. Uh, you know, I had to toe the line of the New South Wales Police, which is completely understandable. But the issue that I was having is that it wasn't connecting with young people. We needed to be able to talk, you know, authentically about the issues that they cared about. We needed to be able to have robust discussions where they wanted to hear my opinion. And as a police officer, I, I couldn't really do both. So I tried for a little while. It lasted for about two years when I really sort of started to do a lot of it. Uh, but I suppose I wanted to really put my foot on the accelerator and make some meaningful change happen. And I had to do that um, on my own, yeah. So this question goes to Danielle next. So what are some of the trends that you are seeing in your practice that's related to social media use and mental health? I think it's really interesting to think about what social media does to us. One of the things that happens in our brain is that when you get, if you're on social media and you get a like or you're connecting with friends, even us as adults, if we're, if we're talking to our friends, um, then we get a boost of serotonin, which makes us feel good. And um, therefore, we're much more inclined to spend time with our phone and with our friends than we are necessarily with our family. And our children are the same. The teenagers are also going to put their friends first um, if they have that choice. Because really, let, let's face it, it's much more fun hanging out with my friends than it is parenting. Um, it, it's um, not nearly as challenging. So one of the things that you see coming into the practice, one of the negative trends would be families who are no longer sort of prioritising each other. And as a result, you know, there are more arguments, parents aren't as in tune with what's going on with the kids or, or kids are 
kids are recognising their parents are not as not as available and therefore they're spending more time connect, wanting to connect with their, their friends or watching Netflix or et cetera. So that would be one thing. And that's, when you think about it, that's actually something that gives us a bit of a buzz and a high. Um, but in our research, what we're saying is that, um, and actually Carol is here, who's been on um, our research team and has just come up with, a, with some findings in the study this week, where we saw that social media wasn't actually strongly related to anxiety except when students said that they're really concerned about missing out. So that FOMO, that fear of missing out, is a really big issue for some students, but not all. When it is, then, then the students are much more hooked to social media and it's much more of an issue and parents um, and therapists need to be able to sort of address that um, because that is a concern. I guess the third thing um, which we found um, both that both came out in a study in July that was run in Canada, a really big study, which showed that um, the more social media use, um, the more um, kids actually were saying that they um, had lower, sorry, they had lower self-esteem, so they, were, they are comparing themselves to other people. Yeah. Um, and actually, we also saw that when kids were spending more time across the day, like each day compared to another, then that was linked to depression. So it makes sense that if you're feeling a bit depressed, it is easier to hang out on your phone and to be, you might be looking at influencers, you might be reading, you might be on social media. If you happen to be socially isolated as well, you're more likely to get rejections when you put things out on social media. And that's hard because you see, other people that you know who are more popular and they're accepted and no matter what they say seems to work, whereas if you're, if you're not feeling good, you don't get that same positive hit. So, so there's actually not one answer. There's definitely a range of trends, but and we kind of need to work out what's happening with our clients. So going back to the second factor, which is the fear of missing out. Fear of missing out on what to clarify? Is it fear of not being on social media or just comparing yourself online? It's missing out on social experiences with friends often. So if I can see my friends, if you know, snap maps now show me that three of my friends are together and they're not that far away from me, but I haven't been invited, I don't feel so great. And if I'm trying all the time, if I'm on social media all the time, then I can be trying to be in every conversation. I can, there's a lot of work involved in that. So, but, but it's that, it's, that, it's how, how well you handle missing out. Yeah. Okay, so this sounds like there's quite a bit of social comparison and that pure influence as well. Now, this next question goes to Jasmine, which is, you know, there's comparison in terms of knowing where your friends are at and wanting to be involved, but social media is also replete with images and pictures of people doing really well. Instagram is entirely based on really idealized images. Now, what does your research say about that comparison? Um, with peers and with celebrities and influencers? Yeah. So I think more and more the research is suggesting that um, how much time you spend on social media um, may be less important than what you're doing on social media, which is kind of what Danielle was saying um, as well. So, I mean, the links between time spent on social media and mental health, some people find it, some people don't. And I think that's because... The relationship between social media and mental health is really complex. It's not going to impact everybody the same. And everybody's social media experience is different because 
people follow different pages, people have different friends, they interact with people in different ways. Um, and so I think that's why we've been focusing a lot of the research on the comparisons that people are making, because that very consistently comes out as being associated with poor mental health and poor body image concerns. Um, and that's because people tend to present the best version of their lives on social media. And I don't think this is something that's a new desire. People throughout history have always wanted to present the best version of themselves to other people, but social media gives us the means to really control how we appear. And so when people are browsing social media, they have so many opportunities to compare themselves to others. And our research suggests that most of the time, people think that others are better than them whether it's more attractive than them, have happier and better lives than them. And that's probably because people are comparing their own reality of their life with the ideal version of other people's lives. And those types of comparisons can be linked with poor mental health. Um, and celebrities and influencers, they certainly present a very edited, enhanced and unrealistic version of their lives, but so do friends and family members as well. Um, so I think comparisons do seem to be one of the driving factors as to why social media may be impacting mental health, especially in regard to uh, body image. So Sean, you're a youth who has developed social media apps and um, what do you think of this uh, idea of social comparison? How does jealousy impact on a young person's developing identity? Like, What was your experience as well? Sure. I just want to second everything you've said. That's I can 100% relate to that. And it, I also do agree that's not just with the rise of social media. It has always been around throughout history. But it is much more available now. We have it on our phones. We have it on our tablets, even on our TVs, if you can afford it. But it, it is everywhere, really, it is school, home, work, whether you're driving with smart cars, any, anything, really. But I guess if, you, if you're a parent or if you're a carer and you want to, I guess, combat that with a developing child, it's... I feel, from my personal experiences and me being raised by my parents, it's a lot of what you want to instill in the child. A lot of it is, and of course, you know, with puberty, there's a whole rush of hormones, and you're always, and as humans, we're, you know, we're a social species, we're always comparing ourselves to each other. But it's all about instilling those values of, you know, like self-respect and self-responsibility, and especially self-esteem, and just being able to recognize that of course, people are going to make them uh, look the best way they can on social media. Yeah. That's how you get likes. That's how you get followers. That's how you become a social media influencer, to put it simply. Yeah. But it's, it, it's important to have that conversation, even with the developing person, and saying, hey, look, I know that you see this you know, pretty much in every social media app you use. Yeah. But just because people post that doesn't mean it's always true. Yeah. And it's... Maybe, yes, you weren't born into this crazy wealthy family, but then again, you weren't born into a third world country either. You know, it's all about instilling those values for if you really want something, then go out and get it. Don't just look at other people who have it. Help, maybe help them plan steps on how they can build themselves professionally or just whatever it is they want to achieve it is really circumstantial. Yeah. So it sounds like um, having that open conversation very early on and also building the child and the youth's core self-esteem so they're less susceptible to these images online is what you're talking about. Yeah. It's definitely, I guess, a mix between controlling and being open. Mm. Uh, personally, I don't think it's good to censor or be 100% open. It should be a balance within the two. Mm. 
you know, if you want to try and restrict the child from seeing, you know, the negative things that are on social media, of course there are, but also positive things. But if you are restricting and censoring with apps, you know, there's all these settings available on our phones, or computers, whatever, then it can also have a negative effect because it's just impossible to fully control what they will see. Because again, it is at school or at home, whether on the bus, you know, whatever it is. There's always a way around. I know as a, even as a kid going through high school, you know, there is things in place that do block internet searches, but there's always a way around. We're smart, we figure it out. But again, you, you, can't, you can't always be there to you know, protect them. And I guess that's, that's just a developing thing they have to figure out on their own. So it's good to, even if you're sitting there with them and explaining things, as you know, with the jealousy mm. or social anxiety, just explaining why people might do something or whether it's for professional gain or just because they like attention. Mm. So it's, it's important to have that balance between censorship and having, an, I guess, a little bit of an open dis like, and like respected discussion between the child and the guardian. Mm -hmm. But to do that, of course, parents need to know about social media, right? <coughs> social media, I guess it's, it's kind of like that thing where, oh, I'm scared of it, so I don't like it, right? And of course, it's hard to understand something at the beginning, but it's, it's not as bad as it seems. It <laughs> so, really isn't. So my thread is to Yasmin, actually. We're going to take this conversation along. Um, what has been your experience? Are most parents you know, quite savvy with social media, or are they grappling with it? What's the trend at the moment? And that might have, um, this question might also uh, be relevant to your experience as well, Danielle. So I might go with you. I think there's a really mixed bag of parents out there trying their best. Uh, Look, the social media and technology evolves really rapidly and it's hard to keep up. And as a parent, sometimes you're just not interested in that. And I understand that. I've got two young kids too. But um, a really, really big part of safety and a healthy online life for kids is parental involvement and interest and also conveying to them that you don't believe that social media is the devil uh, because they really love it and it's really important <coughs> to them. And if you come across as somebody who just is really dismissive of it, dismissive of the relationships they have uh, and really minimises the impact that it has on their lives, then you're going to lose them. You know, we know a lot of the time when it comes to kids, their biggest fear is if they speak to their parents about things that have gone, have gone wrong, if something happens on Snapchat, for example, they're exposed to a nude image or something that's disturbed them, that their response when they, that the reaction when they speak to their parents about that is no more Snapchat, no more phone, it's gone, absolutely never going to happen again. And understand, I understand that that can be a knee-jerk reaction for a lot of parents, but that cannot be the response. We need to be sitting with them, talking through the things that have happened, getting them professional help if they've seen something that has really bothered them, depending on their age. You know, I know um, last year a really disturbing thing happened around the time that, that Florida State shootings happened in America. For a period of time, that was streamed on Snapchat Live, and there were a lot of kids that were sending out messages for help with pictures and videos saying, our school's being shot up, please come and help us. And a lot of young people were exposed to that because it was an algorithm that determined whether it's an area of interest for that particular person and didn't actually look into the content that was actually coming out. So if you have a young person that sees something as disturbing as that and they feel that they can't come to a parent 
um, and talk about what they've seen without the reaction being something that they perceive as a punishment, then that's a real problem. So I think, you know, the, the three biggest rules around parenting in this space is, you know, controlling their access somewhat depending on their age. So there are a lot of great parental control tools out there that filter a lot of content, but they're not just that one dimensional. A lot of them will send you reports, for example, every week of where the child's tried to access and has been bounced from, um, you know, different apps they've tried to download which haven't actually happened. And that is intel. That's really valuable stuff for parents to look at and say, okay, do we have a problem here? You know, we're searching Pornhub three times a week. What's going on? And using that to start honest, open conversations about issues that are going on. The second thing is setting boundaries. It's not a free-for-all. There are rules and regulations and consequences as a result of poor behaviour online. But the last and most important one is that open communication and having them feel that they can come to you and, and get the help that they need. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I know you what have do you so much think, is, is So, you know, this idea of a flat-out ban sometimes doesn't work, but are there instances when it, it does work? Because there's been a ban on mobile phones, right, in schools. So That's different. The ban okay. in mobile phones is it's about the addictive use. element of the fact that if I'm sitting in school and in the classroom or in the playground, I'm feeling a bit anxious, I'm more likely to get on my phone and play a game or communicate with someone else than actually face up my social anxiety and start a conversation. And that when you have everyone sitting there like that, then obviously you don't have that nice communal, like you just can't build an inclusive environment. And, and they're not building social schools. So that's the reason for asking for phones not to be in schools, one of the reasons, and also distraction in class, and, you know, there are other things. But that's different. So I completely agree with Yasmin. Is that right, Yasmin? And I disagree a little bit with what you were saying because I think that actually um, that's where, you know, iPhones are good in that you can, and I've put the instructions in my book of how to do this, of how you can actually look and see what your teenagers are doing. Every so often, I don't think we should look over their shoulder every day. I think we should look over their shoulder every so often. And as parents, when we see things are going wrong, then it's, then it's important that it's part of our, and I guess I agree with Yasmin, it's like a, a regular thing that we do tend to check in. Now, it's not every Monday night. It might be, you know, this weekend and then 10 days later, etc. And when you see things are going out of whack in terms of the amount of time being spent on screens, and I still I do think we need to, to limit the amount of time on screens, um, but you can limit amount of time on particular apps. So you can limit Instagram to an hour a day and you can limit your child to a certain amount of time per day and then they work out the ratio um, for themselves. And, of course, there are, ways, there are ways around some of the things. So, for example, some of their time on, during a day will explode sometimes and you'll give permissions and sort of talk a little bit about how to give those permissions. Um, but generally things like only one hour on Instagram does get respected and that's what they do. And so then they're, it's less, they get less addicted to that serotonin rush um, but more importantly, you can have the discussion with them as it's going and so you're opening... That up. Right. And I talk but about of course, this is going to be age dependent as well because Sean, you're seeing it from an older <laughs> person, still a youth, but older person's perspective where that regulation would feel quite tight for you, right? I, de I definitely think it does depend on age, especially with the you know access controlling. And if you do 
want to take that step and actually getting information on what they're looking at, it is really, really important to look yeah. at the age. If they're under 16, I can totally understand that. But if they're above 16 and you're still looking at, the, at the, what they're looking at, it might make a little boundary of trust. Whereas, oh, why can I trust you, but you can't trust me? But also, as in, I guess, if you try, you know, look from their perspective, or how would I feel if someone was locking me out of at my apps, and how would I feel if someone was looking what I was looking at? You know, maybe if they are looking at pornographic content, okay, but if they're you know older than sixteen, and sure, that's I guess that's more you know. You do what you but do. That, but that's one of the trends that we're seeing coming into the clinic is I'm getting a lot of clients that are older, older boys, 19, 20, not doing well at uni, maybe even failing. And when, I, when you get down to it, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of what we see with people substituting fines for real life is that there's a lot of porn substituting that sexual satisfaction so they don't need to go out and date. Mm. We're, um, well, we're actually raising, the, 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 I suppose, the safest generation of all time in terms of their willingness to take risks and, you know, sexual yeah. risks are, are one of those things. Teen pregnancy has gone down, use of alcohol has gone down because of that exact reason. I read a statistic a little while ago that said that uh, adolescent boys are, are checking porn more often than they're watching Netflix these days, which is quite scary. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with that, but and it could, like it could be a you know a bit of an outlandish comment, but it's certainly something that that I have heard. I know that we're seeing you know increases in reports at emergency rooms with young people with violent sexual injuries because of what they're watching on on pornographic videos and and the role they feel they have to play what makes a man, what makes a woman, what makes a relationship sexy, what is sex at all. So, you know, it is influencing in a big way. So just bringing this back, yes, Jasmine. Sorry. Um, so um, I'm not a parent, so it's not personal experience, um, but we have done a little bit of research looking at parental restriction of social media use. And um, we've found, so we're doing a study um, where we're following 500 kids from when they're in year six, so uh, 10 to 12, and then we're following them every year, hopefully till they're 20. Um, looking at mental health more broadly, but some of the things we're looking at is social media use. And we have asked the parents about how much they restrict the amount of time their children spend on social media. So, I mean, 10 to 12-year-olds, they're under the age they're supposed to be to have social media, but 70% had a social media account already. And in that age group, we did find it was only a link, so I can't say anything predicted, but that more parental restriction was associated with better mental health because they were making less comparisons and engaging in less harmful behaviours online. But then when I looked at literature, obviously the, the kids are now 15, so I'm hoping to look at it when I get time, once they're a bit older. Um, but when I looked at the literature on other types of media, so television, magazines, that type of stuff, it seemed like parental restriction of time wasn't helpful in the adolescent years because it creates parental conflict with the child. Mm -hmm. and kind of suggests that active kind of communication is a better technique. Of course, Which is what Sean suggested. Which of course <laughs> is different depending on the child yeah. and it wouldn't be the same for everybody. Um, but I think it becomes, and it's also harder for parents to restrict their child's social media use when they're not around them as much when they're teenagers, I think. So obviously there's apps where they can restrict things on the phone, but if you don't use those apps then, um, I mean, the kids are on the trains or other things. So I think it becomes harder potentially for parents. Um, I definitely think it's important to look at the age. If they are younger than the 14 maybe, then yes, I think it is important to have the apps too. You know, restrict, uh, not restrict, 
but I guess monitor, definitely monitor what they're looking at. And of course, everything that you see in, whether it's Instagram, any social media, or even porn or anything like that, there's a lot of things that you see that are purely just for views, likes and attention to monetize 100%. That's what YouTube is in a nutshell. But it's important to have that discussion more than I think it is to have that restriction. Personally, I never really had my social media monitored at all. I, I just had a two-way discussion with my parents and, and friends as well, family out of, on the outer circles, and just learning, I guess. And it's also important to, I guess, recognize <coughs> if you are constantly monitoring them, and if you're setting limits on social media use, if it's like one hour on Instagram, one hour Snapchat, sure, you can do that, but I guess, once, they, once they're getting older, they get their own job, they can buy their own iPhone. What are you going to do then? I guess it's not really But in the meantime, they're learning. They don't need it all no, the time. No, definitely. But I think it's also important as it is very circumstantial. It does depend on the child. If, if you are setting those limits, but now that they don't have those limits anymore, they've gone from you know, this amount of time to I can do whatever I want. So it's really important for them to learn by themselves. Oh, I need to monitor this. This is on me. Someone's not making this decision for Parental me control tools will help them do that, though. And that's, I think that's the thing. We're talking about a really big age gap here. So we're talking about kids getting social media at 10 to 16-year-olds to, to adults. So there's a very big difference between how you'd manage that. And it's about adapting to the environment, to the apps, to their behaviours. So it's not just like a set and forget scenario. It's something that we have to have a conversation about regularly. So the parental control tools... You know, there are kids that can definitely get around them. I've seen 10-year-olds get around some of the most sophisticated technology out there. They're not meant to be uh, a, like a foolproof solution. If there was one that had that, we would all have it and we'd all know about it and we'd probably be shareholders in it or something because it would fix a lot of problems, I guess. But it's just a tool and that's the thing. It's a tool to help and it's something that parents of younger kids should definitely be implementing. I've got a five-year-old. She has a, a parental control tool on the iPad. It's not that she searches anything. It's more about the fact that that's just going to be her experience of the internet as she starts now. And when she gets older, I'll look at what I'll allow her to have based on her age, based on the appropriateness of the YouTube video she wants to watch or the game she wants to play, and we'll have a conversation about it. And it's about their buy-in as well. You know, you can't sort of turn around and sort of have this dictatorship, but yeah. it's not about that either. And I think that's where that communication comes in. But it's about a range of different tools you can use and, and that well, are at your I disposal. actually think you guys agree more than you disagree, even though yeah. it doesn't seem like it, because so you too. all agree that this communication between parent and child and a really healthy family dynamic is the foundation, which is what you're all saying, yeah, you know. Yeah. It's just the regulation and the reduction of restrictiveness yeah. as they're growing up. And I don't think that we should be looking at the content. So I don't encourage parents to look at what, what the discussions are in a particular WhatsApp unless their child comes to them to show them because they want to talk about it because these things can be deleted immediately anyway. So I'm not talking about being a nanny overlooking what's happening. I'm just talking about being aware and I would suggest that even if your child is 17 and they're doing the HSC, and a good friend of mine who's a well-known clinical psychologist in Sydney, Chris Baston, gave me this tip early on, that, that, that teenagers, unfortunately, who came through, so that the kids who are now 17, 18, 
didn't have the benefit of us understanding the addictiveness of technology. So the kids, I think, who are 12 and younger now are going to be okay mm. because I think the younger parents or the parents with younger kids know and understand and they're bringing it in, whereas I think we've got this gap of kids where the parents haven't known, we've been completely in catch-up, everyone sort of let their kid have phones and have technology and it was limitless. And then there's been a lot of, how do we rein this in? And so we're, what we're gonna do is run a challenge for families and try and skill families up on the traps that they get um, stuck in. Both we've got things for teenagers and things for parents to try and engage them and get them on board for all the different topics, because there's a lot of different topics. And Envy is just one of them, which we're talking about which maybe I'll get a chance to talk about Absolutely. after. Absolutely, because yeah. we diverted onto a really interesting topic, which yeah. is, you know, the fact that a lot of parents, when they think about control, is just restriction, mm. right? Just restrict, restrict. But you guys are saying that it's a lot more complex than that. Um, you have to have a really good foundation for communication, but also being a little bit more savvy and using them as a way of educating. Prompting and prompting discussion. Yeah, and use. Now, I want to go back to this idea of envy and social comparison because, Jasmine, you talked a little bit about that, that idealised image. And one of the questions that really intrigues me is who do we typically compare ourselves to on social media? Because you talk about, you know, the fact that you see you doing it, but who are the targets usually? Yeah. Um, so some people argue that, at least in regard to appearance, that comparisons are automatic, um, that it's really hard to control whether we make a comparison or not. So I guess social comparison theory kind of suggests that everybody has this innate desire to know where they stand on different aspects of their lives. So if you want to know how well you did in an exam, you'll ask other people how well they did to see where you fit. And so uh, appearance is a really important aspect of many people's lives. And so people um, may be particularly motivated to make comparisons based on appearance, and then it may not be easy to control. Um, so I think the literature is kind of suggesting, so we've done a study recently where we um, got young women to answer questions um, throughout their, at the day on their phone over a week's period, asking about the type of comparisons they're making. And it seems like people make comparisons depending on who they're exposed to. So in everyday life, they seem to compare more to strangers and acquaintances, then uh, celebrities, then close friends, and very rarely to family members. But when we looked at Facebook, Comparisons to friends and acquaintances were most common, but then on Instagram, comparisons to celebrities and friends were most common, and that's because people follow different people on different platforms, um, and so it really depends on the platform and who they're being exposed to. But it seems like comparisons to people you know, like uh, family members, doesn't seem to be as linked with negative outcomes as comparisons to people you don't know. And that's potentially because you have more information uh, about the reality of their appearance. Mm -hmm. So if you see a really nice picture of your best friend on social media, then you can think they look amazing, but I've seen them when they wake up in the morning, they don't always look like that. Where if it's an acquaintance or an influencer or something like that, you don't have that reference point. Um, so I think People seem to compare themselves to people who they have the opportunity to on the platform that they're, they're using, but comparisons to people that you don't know seem to be most linked with poorer mental health. Peers are important, but potentially close peers may, at least in regard to appearance, may not be as harmful. So can I, that, it's a, that's a really interesting finding because 
When you look at the research on envy and understand how envy, like in our research, we've seen envy to be really strongly related with anxiety, with depression, um, with feeling, with poor functioning. Um, and, and when you look at the origins and people that have written about the origins of envy, it's interesting that because we tend to feel often more envious of people who we're close to, who we feel similar to. Because, so if someone else is doing really well, let's say that someone else is a professor of psychology and I have gone through university with her and I might really like her, but because she got to being a professor when she is really young and I'm not on that track and not going to make that track, I am, like, that is going to make me feel envious. Um, and, and when you think back, if everyone in the room were to think back to people that they've felt envious of, maybe as a child, who did you feel envious of when you were in high school? I felt envious of someone up the road mm. who I think... That's the professor right there I'm envious of. She's on track. Okay. So. <laughs> but, 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 but I was, because I was kind of thinking about, well, what, when did I have envy as a, as a teenager? I used to really feel envious for the girl off the, up the road. And, um, and she did have, like, she, she had bigger bosoms than me. And, and my parents, had, and I must have felt inadequate in a range of ways. And they would have said to me, look, it doesn't matter, you're a nice person, etc. And I might have thought, okay, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But then every time, like, the boys that I liked went for her or went for someone else, it was kind of like I didn't really have a way of managing that. Yeah. So and now it's being mapped on to, like, social media, right? That, that envy is relentless then, in a way. Um, I think it's interesting because, like, with social comparison theory as well, it suggests that people um, should compare themselves to people who are more similar to them because they're more relevant comparison targets. So there, people, some people argue that comparisons based on appearance may behave differently from other types of comparisons that people make. Um, and that may be because the ideals are promoted through the media, they're promoted <coughs> through different things. We kind of find out what we're supposed to look like and what's attractive, not necessarily from the people that we're closest to. So that it may be different for appearance comparisons. Um, but then there's also some research looking at comparisons to uh, people who are closest to you. And I think it depends how close they are to you. So right. I think there's a, probably this, I don't know, magic threshold where it becomes less um, impactful. So I guess some people looked at comparisons to romantic partners and things like that. Yeah. And sometimes if they do well, then uh, you can actually feel good about that because you see them as being kind of overlapping with you in some way. So I think close people can be important, but maybe it depends on how close they are and, 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 and whether you feel that competition with them or not. Yeah, I definitely think it's important, especially with jealousy, anxiety, even if they have aggression, especially as someone who is developing a child like the uh, circumstance you said before. Um, while someone might feel, I guess, physically inadequate compared to someone, someone that someone might feel um, men, uh, academically inadequate compared to you. So it's important to recognize that. And there are things that you can change while your body is not really one of them without surgery. There is even academics, there is, is sports, there is really anything else. And if it's, I guess, if you are comparing yourself to celebrities, friends, I guess anyone that's successful, whether it is Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, anything like that, Snapchat, <laughs> it's, it's really important to, about what I said before. It's about you know, telling that child, yes, this person has that. Sure, if you want that, okay, this is how we can work towards it. Is it, is it you want to buy something? Cool. Maybe we can look at getting you a part-time job. 
and then teaching them, okay, now this is how you, you become enough financially smart. This is how you budget. Or whether it's you, they want to, be, uh, I guess, if it is about their body, maybe they can go to the gym. Like, okay, this is how you can work on yourself. This is how your body works, teaching them about themselves. Or maybe it is academically, okay, you want to be a psychologist, or maybe they want to be a physicist. Okay, well, this is the steps. You need to you know, do well in these subjects in the HSC. And you know, if you want to go to a prestigious university, sure. But to do that, you need to you know, do study tips. You, know? you need to focus on your academic learning, but as well as making sure that you're taking time for yourself mentally, having those self-care tips. So I guess it's really important just to instill in that child how they can work towards something they want to get, rather than just that jealousy. But one of the things I wanted to point out, Sean, is that you, you know, there's quite, a, and it's a consistent theme for all of you as well, which is, you know, it, you seem to really focus on that parent-child communication to not let just social media exist on its own and have that um, unidirectional influence that you keep talking about this parent child relationship that's really important for the parent to maintain that guidance. Now beyond, we've talked about restrictions and we talk about the importance of parents talking to their children. What else might be useful, Yasmin? We talked a little bit about modeling. So, you know, that would be useful in terms of guiding social media use. Oh, I think modeling as a parent is a really big issue, a big sort of subject to think about because you can't stand there and ask your child not to behave a certain way or not to use the internet in a certain way if you can't, you know, if you can't model that behaviour yourself. So they will, and I see this with kids all the time, they will crucify their parents if they say, you know, phone away at dinner, darling, but they're sitting there doing their emails at night. And it's just, it's, modelling is really, really important. And, you know, from a lot of the psychologists that I've spoken to as well, you know, that mum or dad with their eyes in the phone and a child actually looking at that um, really makes them feel less important than what they perceive their parent is doing on, on social media. It might be something really important. They might be, you know, booking something or doing something that needs to be done, paying a bill, but a child might perceive that as, you know, you're more interested in Facebook than you are in me and I would really like to engage with you. And we miss those moments. So modelling is, is really important. And I think in the, in the day and age of persuasive technology and, you know, the addictive sort of features that happen on, on our devices, it's a difficult thing for us all, you know. I'm, I find it's hard. But so, yeah, yeah that's why, like, that's where I think the addictive element, um, we're going to be running a five-day challenge for people, for, for parents, um, to try and master this, and it's going to be held in conjunction with Psychology Week. So that can be found on thedip.com for anyone that wants to take part in it. But it's all about understanding the different ways that we get glued in and also just the skills that we need. So we're, we're trying to impart... Um, the skills in just small ways. I think it's step by step for everybody. It's not, it's not a, all of a sudden I can necessarily, if, if I am in that mode of using it too much, I can't all of a sudden put it down. Yeah. Yeah. But also this idea of modelling as well and social comparison, do you come across parents who also use a lot of social comparison? They're constantly taking photos, perfect photos, comparing themselves to others, and then they're trying to encourage the child. Yeah, absolutely. Your children will see what you're posting and if every photo is a perfect selfie then there's a perception that they will have of you as a result of that so you know you just need to be really mindful of the things that you're posting and how you're coming across the people that you follow if every single person on your Instagram feed is Kylie Jenner, Kim Kardashian, you know Paris Hilton 
then those are the people that your kids will think are the people to role model. You know, one of the things I'm really passionate about is, is kids being very conscious of the content that they consume and who they consume it from and how that influences the way they feel about themselves. We need them to be following more astrophysicists and STEM scientists and, you know, lean-in organisers and all, all of these sorts of people that are going to empower them and make them resilient, not just show them, you know, the latest car or spray tan, which has its place. It's a bit of fun. But it's also about being mindful of the thoughts that they are and people's ideas and beliefs um, really influencing their own. So we need to be very careful of that. Jasmine, has there been any research looking at the link between parent and child and whether they model parental? I'm throwing this at you, I know, out of the blue, but has there, um, has there been any research? I haven't research? Uh, looked it up specifically. I know we're looking at it in the longitudinal studies now. So we're asking parents what they're doing on social media and looking at what their children are doing on social media. And so we are hoping to map that over time, um, which will be really exciting to see what happens there. But I know that research, for example, on body image, that children definitely model their mother's behaviours. But So we've done some experimental studies where we got mothers into the lab and got them to look through magazines and some mothers, we were instructed to say things about their own bodies, um, negative things, or not to say anything. And the daughter just hearing the mother say a few things about her own body made the daughter feel much worse about her body, restricted their eating intake. They were given lollies at the end and they didn't want to have as many lollies. Um, so modelling is definitely an important factor, but I don't know about social media, the literature at the moment. There probably is stuff out there, but I'm not aware of it. No, well, you're, you're going to conduct that. Uh, so. I'm not the first. <laughs> I definitely agree for, on that, especially as someone who's gone through the uh, teenage years now going through adulthood. It's definitely important to, yes, you can tell your child, okay, maybe it's time to get off. You know, yeah, no phones at dinner. I think it's an amazing rule, 100% in every household. But again, you know, it's looking at yourself. What are you doing? Is, uh, I guess as a child, the first people you see usually are your parents. And I know that me personally, my two biggest role models are both my parents. But I guess it's okay, these are, these are my role models. Who are their role models? You know, who do they base themselves off? And I guess, again, you know, one way to sneakily look at that is looking at the social media. Who do they follow? Who do they like? Who do they share? All this. That's a good point, right? Definitely. So you know what your parents are also doing the other way around. Definitely. So I, yeah, it's, it's really important to you know, see as a parent or as a carer, guardian, looking at what are you how are you using social media and how definitely how people, how my kids and any kids really watching me and the comments they make about my body, mm. uh, maybe other bodies on social media, or that she's dressing a bit skimpy or she's not, you know, something like that. Or maybe she needs to lose a few kilos, whatever. Anything, anything at all, whether it's, uh, you know, it's nice or it's mean. It's important to look at the influence you have on that child. You know, you know what's really interesting is when you try to help families make changes and you Try. I've, I've, like, my book's really short to try and get people to read it. Um, so you can read it on the toilet in one kind of episode. You should apply that to PhD thesis yeah. as well. So. But, but I wanted it just to be packed full of ideas and that step-by-step -step process for how do you get your family on board. And what's interesting is, like, for instance, a mother might be quite passionate about making changes, but then the spouse isn't. And in fact, there's friction going on between the husband and the wife about what's going on. And a lot of people that have, it's interesting, a lot of men bought the book to start off with. So maybe it's the, you know, men that are concerned about their teenagers and want the changes to happen. It's like, it's just, it's going to be really interesting to see how as a society we're actually able to turn our community around. I actually think we all need to own it. Yep. Like we actually need to own what's happening at home. It's not that we're going to cut it all out. 
it's just we've got to turn it and put those limits in place to do with like the dinner table and all things that people have already been talking about. But how do we actually do it? Now, we have reached the point where we are going to turn the questions over to the audience and Melissa's there with the microphone. Does anybody have any questions for our panellists tonight? You know, I often hear parents saying that their teenager, maybe 15-year-old son, he's becoming very aggressive, um, sort of in a way being rebellious towards the parents. And also staying in the bedroom and gaming. Um, and they're finding it very difficult to be able to get the young person to listen and also um, almost like being physical with the mother. So I think I think when you're looking at that, especially with that parent-child interaction, uh, a lot of parents may not realise, I think very often they don't realise it, but the body language you're putting out, the tone of your voice. Are you, are you trying to get them to come out of the room in a welcoming tone? Are you being a little bit condescending? You know, and if, if they, and again, I think it's very natural as a teenager to rebel against your parents. You know, it's, I feel like we've all done it throughout teenage years, no matter what. We always trying to, you know, this is, this is how I want to live my life or you know, whatever, anything like that. But it's really important to take a step back and, re- and think about, okay, what is my body language? What am I saying if I turned the chairs around and I was hearing this? Would I feel belittled or would I feel empowered? Can I just, sorry, clarify, are you asking about the problem with the excessive gaming or his behaviour or what strategies to put into place? Well, that as well and the aggression. Can I, can I just say that, that this is where this idea that screen restrictions and the amount of screen time and it's not affecting mental health is actually disproven in a really big research study. And I've got the graph on my website to show people. I've made a little podcast about it. Um, but it's really, there's a really clear story when you look um, at the different age groups that there is optimal amount of screen time is kind of one hour then it starts to, then behaviour such as being able to keep calm, not um, having a tantrum, um, being able to stay curious in the world and being able to finish tasks, all those things start to deteriorate with increased time um, on screen. Now that's a very blunt study in terms of they looked at parents' reports, um, but I think it was over 30,000 kids that they included in it. And it's a really, really clear, nice story of how, of the addictive element. And um, I talk about it and David Gillespie talks about it, about how the Delta Fos B um, starts to, you start to need more um, dopamine in order to get the same hit. That Like there is quite a clear chemical change that's going on that needs to be interfered with. So I, I don't, and, and yes, I agree that when you're coming at it from a parent wanting to make big changes, you have to handle it in a very thoughtful, caring way without being patronising, and you do, you may well need to get professional help. But I think we're in denial if we say absolute amount of screen time does not matter, and, that, and that's where you've got to look at how much are the children doing other things? How much are they choosing to do an extracurricular activity out of, after school, or are they making a choice not to do it so they can come home and be on their Xbox or spend more time in the... Can they calm themselves down without a screen? Because we're seeing that adults, as well as teenagers, 
are not being able to calm themselves down anymore without a screen. We're seeing that people can't sit with uncertainty, which is what I sort of started at the beginning, which is really important for mental health, because the moment I have a question, I can look at Google or text my friend. So my patience is being undermined. And in fact, people who don't like uncertainty are the ones and who use their phone to handle it and who are saying that a month, one month later, they're more addicted than other people. So there are these things that are happening and simmering behind the scenes that we really do need. There are all these traps. And as parents and as health professionals, I think it's our responsibility to learn about them and be aware. And then we can be skilled with how to get around them. There's lots of different, different, but we just need to take a bit of time to understand the different ones. And different patients or kids will have different things happening. And so we just need to know what's, what's happening in our own homes. I wonder whether that could be presenting to the presented to the parent as well so that they, they've got a bit of an external measure to see. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to do with that challenge. Yeah. That is exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. Give people the information, arm them up, educate them. Yeah. But it's also partly about getting parents empowered because yeah. there are many parents who just say, oh, it doesn't matter. My kid's going to have, like, sort of, my kid's going to have a phone anyway and have pure access at 19. Why would I need to, or they can get around any limit I put in place, so I'm not going to do it. But I think that's where, as a community, we just need to be um, educated. It doesn't mean that we're addicted. It just means that we're leaning on it too much. So it's just a dependence. I think parents are doing it too. Yeah. 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 So, Jasmine, you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, I think there's a difference between... um, just asking people how much time they spend on social media and looking at Facebook addiction and Facebook intensity of use. So there are a lot of large-scale studies and now there's a lot of meta-analyses looking at all of the research in the field and pretty consistently they find not much. When you look I, at I emailed one of those researchers, the big one that was reported in the paper at the beginning of the year that said, and people in the news that said, you know, so um, technology use and screen time is not, no worse for you than eating potatoes. And and in that study, which they used data collected from different government areas, they actually excluded or didn't ask people to include time they spent communicating with friends and family, which I think would be... The entire thing of a social network, is it not? I think we've got a bit of a mix with the message and it's it's a... Yes, research has a lot to go, but I think for us to say there are no concerns, like, like we're well, seeing hold on. it in I, the I don't think Jasmine is saying, I'll just no, get, no. let you finish first. I don't think that, um, so I think when we look at Facebook addiction, and that's something a little bit different, so that's when they feel a lot of anxiety if they don't have their phone on them all the time, when they feel like they have to constantly need to check it. The kind of items in a measure of Facebook addiction or Facebook intensity or Instagram or whatever platform you use are a little bit different from just how much time that you spend on it. So yes, when you look at Facebook addiction and Facebook intensity of use, when you look at those really extreme behaviours, that is always linked with poorer uh, mental health. But when you just ask people in general how much time they spend on social media, even if you find an effect, and I've done a, a, you yeah. know, quite a lot of studies looking at just time spent on social media, the effect size is really small. Wow. So it's not that it's not important to think about how much time we spend on social media. There are people, and probably people that are coming to clinics who have disorders, they're going to be in the really high intensity use because they're more likely to engage in those behaviours anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's not saying that time spent isn't important, but when we're not thinking about you know, the clinical populations who are the kind of you know, smaller uh, set of, I guess, teenagers in general, that um, I think it's 
important to think about what they're accessing, what they're looking at, what they're doing. So it's not, I think, time spent on social media is particularly harmful if it's giving you more opportunities to engage in harmful behaviours. Right. But that's what's key, so it's more, I think. it's more nuanced than just quantity of time, that we're looking at other factors as well that feed into it, and it's much more complex. And, and the study I was talking about was not time spent on social media, it was time spent on devices that was tracked against that behaviour. And that's also quite different, so because different, time spent on gaming can yeah. be quite different yeah. from time spent on social and, media. And it's and really, Facebook. it makes sense when you think, well, if you're spending seven hours a day, of course, there's likely to be problems. Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say something. I just to mention yes, something about gaming because it, it's a it's a very different topic to social media uh, by nature. So games are very addictive by design in, in ways that social media, I suppose, isn't as bad. So some of the issues that we find with kids, particularly if they've got gaming consoles in their bedrooms, is this whole issue of, you know, circadian rhythms changing, them not wanting to go to sleep, their impulse control not being at the level that it needs to be. So they see a console, they jump on, they get really engaged in a game. Game. They're brought into this elevated state of cognitive arousal, which means that they're not able to calm down like quickly. Their sleep is impacted. Suddenly it's two o'clock in the morning. They have to go to school the next day. Uh, you know, games are set up in ways that they are sort of short bursts <laughs> of really exciting information, 15 to 20 minutes generally. Uh, they are multiplayer chats. A lot of the time is, is a function that keeps them on there. They feel connected to their community there. So there's a draw there that's different. Uh, things like colour biases, you know, even lots of red, bright flashing colours, things like that, draw them in, makes it harder for them to switch off. Rewards, lots of different things that happen there, which might be something that is impacting that boy. Mm. And it's also really, really hard for them to, to switch off. And I would, I would go back to what um, the whole panel has really said in that it, I think his, his lifestyle needs to be analysed a bit. It's not just about coming in and saying, get off, because that's going to create conflict. Yeah. Um, we need to look at what's missing in his real life, mm -hmm. his real relationships. Is there disruption in the home? Is there something that he's isolating himself uh, for or about? Um, that would be something that I would be looking into because it is about balance. It is about real relationships. And if he's withdrawing, there's a reason. Um, and when it comes to violence, I put my police app, uh, officer hat on here, um, there are AVOs that, that people can take out. They have to, I've taken out a few of them myself against a child in protection of their parents. Not something anybody wants to do, but sometimes if it is becoming a really violent situation in the home, um, I really advise parents not to be afraid of that. It's not uh, an order that's for life. Uh, they won't necessarily get a criminal record. You can live in the same house. It's a restriction on behaviour. And that behaviour means you can't assault, molest, harass or otherwise intimidate the protected person or family within that home. So there are steps to, um, I suppose, follow if you want to. Um, but it's important that parents don't feel threatened in their own house over something like a game. Definitely, and I think a way that it's more of a preventative action before it even gets anywhere near that stage, yeah. especially as when they're a young child, and like before they're even 10, like from pretty much when you're starting primary school to when you're finishing high school, or maybe when you get to that year 11 and 12, whether you want, when you think about whether you want to uh, you know, go down an academic, physical, whatever path you want, but I think it's, it, it goes hand in hand with the time you spent on your phone. It's legitimately forcing that child into a recreational, sporting, social activity. I know I, whether that's dancing, rugby, whatever it is. I know I was forced pretty much from a young age to do recreational sport, and I'm glad I was. Yeah. 
Uh, it's, it develops your social skills. It develops your, you know, physical attributes and your, you know, you know, things that you use in everyday life. Whether it is how you talk to a person, that mutual respect, and you know, team working, independent working, and being able to get along with others, being able to have this, you so know, playing games discussion. in real life, not online, yeah. is useful. And actually, it's evidence based because they just did a really big research study showing that um, kids have better well being if they played team sports. Definitely. <laughs> and if you're spending time playing team sports, whether you're just, you know, doing something recreational that is with other people, you don't, you're more tired when you get home, or I'm just going to have a shower and then go to sleep. Because I'm tired, I'm not going to spend, you know, that two, three hours in one day, but if I'm doing it three times a week, I'm not spending that time on my phone. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, Hi. Thank you, firstly, for really pointing out how grey this whole area is. Um, I'm interested in hearing all your perspectives actually on the move recently to reduce how easily you can see the number of likes on Instagram and I think it's Facebook as well and just what your thoughts are on that. Jasmine, is this? Um, I, so I haven't um, done a whole bunch of research looking at number of likes or anything like that, but I guess thinking about comparisons, um, if you have a number there, it's really easy for you to make a comparison and people do make comparisons on popularity on social media. Um, they're quite frequent among teenagers. So I guess by removing that number, it's, it's less easy for people, for young people, anybody really, to make that comparison on popularity. But I think young people will get around it in other ways. So they could have the number of comments. Uh, You can still click on um, the likes and scroll down and have a gauge how many uh, likes they've got. Um, So I I don't think we, I think it's too soon to know if it's actually had an impact or not because it's just come out. But um, I think Instagram are actually engaging in quite a lot of changes, which I think are really positive. They're actually looking at the literature now and actually trying to implement things. So I saw in the news, I don't know if it's true or not, um, yesterday that they're now um, changing the apps, the the, filters, sorry, on Instagram. So you can obviously, um, the options on Instagram where you can make your dog face into like a dog face or things like that. Apparently they're removing the options that kind of surgically enhance your face, like making your lips look bigger and things like that, which I think is a very positive uh, thing. They've also uh, stopped people selling skinny teas and things like that. So I think they're taking a lot of good steps. I think some people won't like it, um, but uh, I think we don't know over time how good it's, how impactful it's going to be. But I'm happy that they're engaging in these things anyway, from a research perspective. And from a re- and research does take time. But I guess I can give you my perspective of someone that does do social media every day and is the in the younger generation. You know, if you're looking at perspective from someone that's going, that's you know monetizing using social media, that's terrible. But if you're looking from a perspective of you know someone that's developing as a child, teenager so-and-so, whatever it is. I think it's absolutely great. I think it's amazing that they are restricting that likes not only on Instagram, but also on Facebook now. <clears throat> and of course, you can click and scroll through, but that takes effort in all honesty. A lot of us, we're just not <laughs> bothered to scroll through and see how many likes. We might have a quick look, sure. But I think not having, not being able to physically see the number of likes, I think it's amazing. I honestly think it's really good work Getting rid of the, the likes. I guess the interesting thing is that's, I guess, counterproductive to the social media apps making profit, you know, whether it's advertisements, whatever it is. So I think, 
I guess, uh, from a view into what children are seeing. I think it's great. I think they're still seeing the number of likes, aren't they? It's just that other people aren't seeing it, so their friends can't see the number of likes that you got. So if you, so, so we definitely don't know how effective it's going to be, and it's going to be interesting. At least I agree with like that. It's a, it's the first step, but if you are putting all of your self-esteem in how many likes I'm getting from my friends, and if that's still what you're putting a lot of effort into, that's not going to go away. So that's where it comes to balance, back to balance. Where are our kids getting their self-esteem from and are we having the conversations with them about how they're making choices? Um, I just will add, I know everybody said something, but I have first-hand experience with this because we work with Instagram and Facebook. So in July this year, I was fortunate enough to be part of a, um, a day called the Facebook Design Jam with about 25 young people from Australia and New Zealand. So a really, really big mix. And the aim of the game was to uh, come up with ideas and uh, prototypes that they could uh, think about implementing that make it a safer, more responsible environment for their younger users. We know that the average age of, uh, one of the most popular ages of uh, subscribers or people that have created accounts on Instagram are 10 year olds. So it's pretty scary, it's young, and it you know coincides a lot of the time with getting their first smartphone, things like that. They are hand on heart, trying really hard to listen to what is actually going on. Hiding the likes is one thing that they've done. You can still see them, but it's a few more steps and a bit more effort to find it, which is good. They're even looking at things, if we're not talking about comparison, for example, but appropriate behaviours. So you can, uh, it's now using a thing called uh, a comment warning. So it's got algorithms that will detect bullying language or emojis or things that people basically, I suppose kids know are digs or in-jokes that might not otherwise be detected. So you can now pre-format in the settings things that you don't want to see, things that will flag, and it will actually uh, prompt a person if they're typing something that may come up as bullying language, are you sure you want to post that? So it stops someone actually thinking, it stops them in their tracks to think a little bit about what to do. The other thing that they've uh, trialled since July as well is a restrict option. So when it comes to cyberbullying, one of the issues that we see, and as experts we say, block a person if they're bullying you, just block them and that, that will make everything okay. And one of the big issues that we see with that is kids say, well, that, that's fine, but um, if I block that person, I then need to go to school the next day and deal with the fallout in terms of our relationships in the schoolyard from blocking the bully. And so what the restrict option does is essentially mutes a person without their knowledge. And it also mutes everything that they say on that particular thread. So those are just some examples, but I, I'm, I'm quite passionate about not yeah. bad-mouthing them as well because they are trying. They have unleashed a big thing on society that no, I don't think anybody really predicted, you know, where it would go. But they are putting quite a lot of resources into trying to make sure it's a safer, more cohesive, um, more protected environment for its users. So I think, you know, we'll see a lot more of that in the future. And I guess one of the things with the likes is um, even though you can count it, you're protected from that observer perspective, right, yes. of other people knowing how popular your post is, and that can remove at least one element of social comparison. Definitely. I think, you know, again, we, we are social people. We want to see, you know, how we rank, whether it's you're on the test, whether it's likes, whether it's whatever. Like, I can be like, okay, I posted a photo at 6 o'clock today, I've got 50 likes, or, but Jonathan posted a photo at the same time, he's got like 
200 likes. What am I doing wrong? Am I not attractive? Can't do that anymore. Exactly. And how's that playing with your mood? So when you get 50 versus 200, like you get that up when you get the 200. And then if you think 50 is not good, you get a... Exactly. So, so, I think, so what are we letting influence our mood all the time? Definitely. So I think that, that step where you can't see other people's likes anymore, I think that's a really good first step. There are definitely other steps that can be taken 100%. But I think it's a really good initial step. And I guess it's evidence of them, of them saying we are trying. Any other questions from the audience? Um, I have a question for Jasmine. Um, I'm really interested in the body image area um, and I've seen, seen the statistics and how horrendous they are at the moment with um, the influx of negative body image, especially in younger ages as well. Um, I was wondering how you think we can improve this, especially alongside you've got the social media um, influx, which is a massive thing, but it's also everywhere. So it's on every billboard. The way that we should look is on every TV advert. Um, what do you suggest in terms of like the future, I guess, how we protect, especially the younger minds coming through um, with the statistics of how young nowadays people have bad body image thoughts, um, how do you think we kind of protect that real young generation coming through with that? I think it's really, it's really hard because appearance-related pressures come from every aspect of society. So when you're little and there are studies showing that girls as young as five are unhappy with their bodies or restrict their food intake and things like that. So when you're little, parental influence is very important and so that's where modeling behaviors and things like that are, are, are probably the key thing and then I guess you get more exposed to magazines and television shows and things like that and then peers become important so there's so many different factors it's really hard to protect somebody uh, from all of those influences um, I think there's not a magic answer I think if there was we'd probably implement it and everyone would have good body image um, but I think I think what's really key is challenging the beauty ideals because I think that's what really drives some of this dissatisfaction. And so in society, there's very narrow beauty ideals. There's one specific look that's been promoted as being attractive. And that's happened throughout history, but it's very much socially constructed. So the ideal body has changed over time um, and it's based on companies wanting to sell things and, and models who's in fashion and all those types of things. Um, but it's, I think I've seen one study, don't quote me on this, but I think it was something like 14% of women can actually look like the ideal. So for most people, they are trying to achieve something they're never going to achieve. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of part of the kind of issue around body dissatisfaction as well. And even people who do meet the ideal don't actually seem to think they meet the ideal and are generally not happy anyway. Um, so I guess trying not to buy into those ideals is important. Um, there's a really big movement on social media at the moment called the body positive movement. Um, and I think things are starting, starting to change. Some um, advertisers are using larger models or more diverse models. Um, and the body positive movement um, is basically challenging the beauty ideals, trying to show real bodies and trying to get people to love and appreciate their body regardless of what it looks like and also to focus on the function of your body because that's also been found to improve body image. So engaging in sport and things like that is helpful as well. So I guess um, 
if you kind of can get younger people to think critically and to challenge those ideals and try and get them not to buy into them, then that's going to be a good foundation for when they get into the teenage years and are constantly bombarded. But there's always going to be things that, that influence them. Um, so there's only so much control someone can have over that. But I think getting, yeah, getting them to not to buy into those ideals and to invest their self-worth in other things outside of their appearance um, is, is really important. I think the language you use is really important at home as well. So I've got two young girls. We talk about strength a lot. We talk about Wonder Woman a lot. We talk about things that are good for our bodies a lot um, rather than sort of pretty and things like that. And, you know, my five-year-old came to me the other day and said, I want a green juice for breakfast, mummy, like a blended disgusting green juice that I have for health. But I was like, you know, that sort of stuff seems to be working for her. So I think the language that you use and the role models that you show them are really important. Yeah. And it does seem like from very young, weight plays such a really big role. You know, straight away, I recently said to my uh, daughter, you know, I've gained some weight. And straight away, she thought that was negative when it can be a positive outcome, right? G gaining muscle weight, right? And actually being in a healthy weight range. Yeah. And I think that's... Um, Another part of the problem is there's so much stigma around weight um, and weight is very frequently linked with health. That you can look at someone and tell how healthier they are just by the way, just by the way that they look. Um, and that's not necessarily always the case. People can be thin and very unhealthy as well. Um, and I think that association between weight and health and all the negative kind of connotations that people put, and it's very widespread, is also kind of part of the issue. So not only are people told you need to look thin and toned, but also you can't be overweight because there's all these issues with being overweight. And so I think the whole environment's really challenging. And I think the message that are being portrayed at every aspect of society make it a hard thing to navigate. Um, I'll ask one to Yasmin. You talk about um, gaming and not, you know, that lack of impulse control. But you also mentioned to me when we were having a little bit of a chat before um, this concept of online disinhibition. All right, so that's often seen in youth and individuals that are not very beneficial. Can you tell us a little bit about online disinhibition? Yeah, well, online disinhibition is something that I think we all experience. It's really just being prepared to do and say things that you wouldn't ordinarily do face-to-face. -face. It's the power of, of you through a screen. So, you know, we can sometimes see this in more positive ways. So an example might be that, you know, a friend of yours has had a baby and you're commenting on that photo and you're talking, you're almost gushing about how beautiful this baby is and that's online disinhibition. It's just sort of, you wouldn't say that in that way in front of that person. But the big issue is obviously when it's negative, where people are prepared to say, go kill yourself, you're fat, you're ugly, you're this, you're that. Uh, and it's something that we, we really do need to start addressing. Um, a lot of the kids that I speak to have a real apathy about the effects of their words through a screen. Like they really, really genuinely believe they don't have the same impact. And their attitudes around that, uh, I think one of our, our biggest hurdles um, as advocates in this space is changing um, the assumption that the internet is always going to be this way, we just need to get used to it, people are going to be able to say and do whatever they want without consequence because we see the consequences. Even if it's not as serious as someone harming themselves, the long-term impact of being cyberbullied, I think I, re I watched a, um, a documentary on uh, SBS a few years ago where Tara Moss was um, at, around the corner from here actually at one of the um, brain labs sort of saying that they found evidence that cyberbullying had effects on the brain the same that 
uh, as an assault, physical assault. Uh, so they, it really does damage us physically too. So having conversations about the power of a word, that words can wound, that a screen is not going to protect you, um, knowing the, I suppose, the motivation behind someone who is trolling as well, wanting a reaction, wanting an emotional response being the aim of the game will help people understand how to manage it. But I think, you know, we all need to be aware of, of how we speak to people, the things that we say, uh, and, and what impact that they might have on the person that we're conveying that message to without tone, body language and all of the other, you know, um, message signal receives kind of options that we have. So, yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think it's really important, especially with that parent-child or guardian-child, to develop that empathy, the sympathy, especially empathy. You know, it's okay, okay, maybe the child doesn't realise that what they're saying is hurtful. I know, I can remember back to times of me using social media when I was younger, maybe 12, 10, I, I would make like, uh, we, we have memes, right? We'll make a funny comment but then maybe someone might not receive that as a comment. That's because there's no body language, there's no voice tone, there's no, you know, reading facial image, you know, responses to when you say something on the internet. There's none of that at all. It's just the words on the screen. So it's really hard to understand and convey that message. So it's really, I guess, having that conversation about this is what it can come across as, and this is how you can, you know, combat that maybe phrasing it this way and learning how other people can see what you say. And hopefully that's going to pair it up really nicely with that algorithm that you're talking about. Do you really want to say that? Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, that if, if it works on Instagram, it could certainly be um, translated into lots of different places. It's a, it's a great idea and that's what we need. We need good ideas. We need young people having a voice in, in this discussion about what they want, what they think you know, they'd like to see. The ideas from that that design jam that they came up with were absolutely brilliant, you know. Like it was really interesting to sit there and hear their thoughts. So I think, you know, as well, if it's a by youth for youth idea, then that's got much more buy-in than adults around them telling them what to do all the time as well. Absolutely. So, yeah. so we've talked a lot about quite potentially negative impact of social media, but are there any positive impacts at all for the youth and how they can use social media? I think there's heaps. Like, I love it. I think it's great. It's, it's just a, about the approach. So, as we say, the content that they're consuming and who they're connecting with. You know, I've, I've met lots of people on social media that, you know, I don't know in real life, but I still value that relationship because you get advice, you get connection. I met my business partners through LinkedIn in Western Australia two years ago and now we run a business together. You know, it, it can connect people in ways that other things can't and, and in a really strategic way too. Um, when we speak to kids, we talk a lot about uh, their personal brand and how they want to be conveying themselves to people and the control they have over that. So, you know, documenting on something like LinkedIn, if you're a year 10 student or a year 11 student, what are your experiences? What school have you gone to? What have you volunteered as? What, have, what are your awards? You know, what's your thought leadership on your area of interest? Where do you want to go? Do you vlogs, blogs, whatever it might be? All of this sort of stuff is a great opportunity for them to, to step outside of their comfort zone, to learn new skills and to put themselves, you know, in the best possible position for the job or, you know, the course that they want to do at uni. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways that it's, it's really positive. 
Um, you know, body image and things like that, maybe not so much, but there's, there's a million different things that are great about, about social media. How about you, Danielle? Is there anything positive related to social media that could be recommended within um, I, look, I, I think populations? When I give talks at schools, the parents say that the parents who have chosen to put limits on and stop their kids having any being on social media, those children are inevitably ostracised. They're not invited to things, they miss out. So I think it's very much about just like we do need to sort of embrace and understand social media and and just be educated on when we when our kids can fall into traps and when we can fall into traps. And if we're having those discussions and we've got some sensible limits on it and we know what's going on, then, yeah, it can be a positive. And, Sean, you've been developing a Headspace app as well, which has a... See, uh, as I kind of mentioned, I, also, I do the social media for Headspace on their junction. And um, I, as, I guess, kind of a content developer, it's... When you're doing it on behalf of like a government-funded organization, it is very hard because there's copyright, there's other limits, what I can, cannot make posts about, what I can share, what I can't share, of course, all that. But I guess if you're looking at it more from a solo uh, content creator, I think on Facebook, on Instagram, Snapchat, any social media thing that, you, that is, especially LinkedIn, there are body-positive uh, communities. There's LGBTQIA+. Communities that you know are all about you know destroying the closet, uh, you know being happy with who you are. There's a lot of communities that you probably haven't even thought of, you haven't even thought to look for. But I guess it's having that conversation with that child. Yes, there are people who are trolls. Yes, there are people who are looking to get attention because something's not going well in their personal life. Yes, there are people that want to destroy people. But there's also communities that try to combat that. There are communities that like. Um, this is what's going on. This is how you can actually combat this. There's communities that, you know, help you volunteer. There's communities with sporting groups. There's, there's a whole bunch of things. There's even communities with decreasing screen time, I'm sure. Yeah, we've, but, we've got one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's always... There's a, there's a social media group. Yeah, decent group. Exactly. So there's, it's really important to recognise that there are communities out there for pretty much anything and it's a simple Facebook search, Google search, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is. It's a simple search for all of it, really. And it's recognizing and I guess educating yourself as a guardian that social media isn't the scary thing. It's understanding it and uh, there are ways that you know, social media does help. It's almost like I think there's different mental health of groups that there might be on Facebook. So it depends a lot on what sort of limits are put on. Like there are rules on different Facebook groups. Mm. Don't be judgmental. And I, I do not think we should be judgmental of other, other people and the way they use their screens either. Mm. So if, I do think that if you see a family at a restaurant and they're on their screens, most of us would think, oh, that's really poor. Mm. But I actually don't think that's right because you don't know what's happened for them that day. You don't know whether the mother's actually been spending a whole lot of time with their children and now they've finally gone out and this is their, yeah. that is their babysitting option. The so Lunic think, cartoon yeah. this week. Yes. Yes. What's that? Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, judgment is not going to help. We've got to be supportive about this. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And Jasmine, you know, like body image um, issues have been around since television and commercials that preceded social media. Are there ways we can use social media in a positive way to combat body image issues? Yeah. So, I, like I said, the relationship between social media and mental health is very complex. 
It doesn't impact everyone equally. And there certainly is content on social media that can be helpful. People can get social support from others through social media. They can find people who are similar to them, find information. And there's a lot of positive aspects of social media. And we have recently done a study looking at the body positive content. And we found, it was only one study, but we did find that looking at that content improved body image and boosted positive mood. So it didn't just have an, a null effect, but it actually could be a really helpful tool to improve social media, to improve body image while using social media. Um, so I think it can be helpful. I also think that the people are, who are likely to be most harmed by social media are those who are already vulnerable. So kids who are already at risk of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, they're engaging in the harmful behaviours because those, those kind of mental health concerns drive that behaviour, which then makes them worse. So I don't think that, I think that's what's important. We can't think about all teenagers in general. The activities they're engaging in is important, but their mental health can also drive their behaviour. Can I, can I just qualify that slightly in that I think it's not that they're engaging in harmful behaviours, it's just that what they're taking away from it is that thought process of I'm not good enough or I haven't been included. So it's, it's not that the, the action is necessarily harmful, it's the way they're then interpreting it. I think it's both. So I think like, for example, with um, eating pathology or body dissatisfaction, there is research showing that those who are more dissatisfied follow more influences. Right, and, okay. And then also so make more comparisons yeah, yeah. and do things okay. like that. But they also probably interpret that information more yeah. negatively. So it's definitely yeah. both, I think. One of the really interesting findings that has come up the whole time um, from years ago was that, that Students that um, use Facebook or social media and that, who talk about experiencing envy and report it, they're the ones that experience depression. And the ones who are using social media but aren't managing envy in the same way and aren't recognising it and aren't getting gripped by it, those students are not getting depression and we're not experiencing depression. So that's why I think envy is a really key topic for us to master and get over. And just two things with that, I guess it's that it's recognizing that you know social media is a uh, does have uh, you know it does code for like what you search for is what you will receive in advertisements. Have you ever looked on eBay for a fridge for a dishwasher, and then maybe you, the next day you're on a completely different app and get an advertisement for a dishwasher? Yeah. So I guess it's, it's targeted marketing as it's, well. It's right? what you're putting out there is what you're getting back. Okay. So. On that note, thank you to our panelists for a really engaging and interesting conversation. And just to be a bit cheeky, follow us on social media, like Dog. <laughs> we are on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn, LinkedIn, sorry. Yep. So we've got to get one on Instagram, it sounds like. We haven't got yeah. one yet, yep. Yeah. Okay, there we go. So do follow us because we have a lot of updates on what's going on on Black Dot. But thank you very much to our amazing panelists, Jasmine, Sean, Danielle, and Yasmin. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.